I really don't know anybody in my whole digital world. I don't know anybody that's made more art than I have. And almost none of it's been seen by anybody except myself. And, you know, I'd like to get that in a more approachable context. One thing Terrence would say at every public event, at the end of it, he'd say, look around you and, and notice and acknowledge the others because these are the people that check you out at the grocery store, that, you know, teach your kids at kindergarten. These are the people that you want to know because you wouldn't be in this room if you weren't interested in psychedelics. So I know we all have to whisper about it, but the more you do talk to one another, help each other make their music, help people get their book published, do this stuff together because you're a community and you've been marginalized by brutality, don't let it in there. Do it. Take it on and you'll be rewarded because he thinks nature rewards courage a dubious concept, but one that has inspired me occasionally. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to episode 209 of the podcast that explores our place in time. This is your host, Michael Garfield, paleontologist, futurist. It's funny, I had a friend tell me yesterday that he thought the paleontologist part was some kind of metaphor or joke or whatever, but no, for the first 22 years of my life, it was my single-minded preoccupation. And this show is inspired and framed for me by a very, very deeply ingrained commitment to digging, discovery, preservation, restoration, and engagement with deep time and our place in deep time. But for most of my youth, I was kind of uninterested in human paleoanthropology, archaeology, history, genealogy. The human scale wasn't doing it for me as much as imagining millions and millions of years, imagining a completely different biosphere than the one we inhabit. And then something happened to me in my 20s and early 30s where suddenly I began to understand the value of a much more proximal investigation of antiquity and of the recent past and what it will mean for me to be an ancestor and a lot of that had to do with my encounters with my elders in the psychedelic community, folks I met through the festival scene, through Burning Man and the MAPS psychedelic science conferences. There was such an extraordinary wealth of story in these people, and so much of it was going untold or at least unrecorded, you know, for good reasons Diana Slattery talks about in her book Xenolinguistics. The, the unspeakable is not just about the ineffable or the translinguistic, but about the taboo or the illegal. And a lot of these fascinating older people had these extraordinary stories that would have incriminated them. So when you think about the drug war and the extraordinary loss of cultural depth and richness that comes when there are inhibitions on storytelling and on archival and on the intergenerational transmission of knowledge, well, thank God things are changing, at least somewhat. Not just because of changes to the regulatory framework, but because people are getting bolder. I mean, just by comparison, you can see a lot of the older 
members of the government involved in the UFO UAP cover-up that are at the end of their careers and feel like they have nothing to lose and everything to gain by coming clean about what they were involved in over the years. And I think something similar has been going on here. You know, people are just tired of keeping secrets and we're living through an extraordinary era of disclosure in a lot of different ways. So one of the first people that I was really, really inspired to get into podcasting as a way of helping cement their stories in the public domain was my friend Ken Adams, an extraordinary experimental filmmaker, documentarian, father, psychonaut, and new media pioneer with whom I feel a deep resonance in terms of personal process and commitment to the transformations of culture and of society and in the midwifing of something strange, mysterious, and wonderful erupting into history. Ken was a close friend and colleague of the ethnobotanist and psychedelic philosopher Terence McKenna. And so in getting to know him and Bruce Damer and Brenda Knight and Norman Katz and several other of Terence's friends, I feel like I have healed somewhat my lifelong sense of spiritual homelessness by anchoring it in a lineage of bold explorers working in the psychedelic underground. And so I'm very, very excited I get to share Ken and Ken's stories with you today. Ken was up in Santa Fe for a screening of his 1993 film Alien Dreamtime, which he produced with Terrence at the Jean Cocteau Cinema. And I had the privilege of sitting up there on stage with him and Vince Kedlubeck, the, the co-founder and former CEO of Meow Wolf, to discuss the historical import of this film. Although I didn't feel like I had much to contribute after such a mind-blowing cinematic experience. Anyway, Ken is one of the first people I ever interviewed for anything back when I was the editor-in-chief of SoulPurpose.com, three years before I even really started a proper podcast. But I've been really, really eager to get him on Future Fossils since the very beginning. And I have immense respect for him and his work. And I think you should go to his Vimeo linked in the show notes and check out hour upon hour of totally amazing, interesting video experiments. And also, just as a note of historical context and framing, this was the 30th anniversary of the release of Alien Dreamtime. It was also the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park. In the same month, there's something really, really strange and interesting going on about the advent of digital filmmaking in June of 1993. And that transition is something that I just explored at length in my neuro-learning course on the science and philosophy of Jurassic Park. If you would like to access the recordings of my talks from that class, then I'm going to be making them available soon to the top couple tiers of Patreon supporters, as well as the long, long overdue ebook for my first essay collection, as well as the album I've been working on and finally just completed after 15 years. So really, there has never been a better time to sign up and support my show, especially in this awkward interregnum between grown-up jobs that I've been living in for most of the year. 
which is why I want to issue special thanks to everyone who bought my recent live album of electric guitar music performed live at the Psychedelic Science Conference, everyone who has been supporting the show on Patreon and Substack, and new patrons Joshua Sachs and Gilberto Vendramin, and lastly, the folks at newenautics.org, a nonprofit dedicated to envelope pushing scientific research, including extended state DMT trials and satellite-based archaeology. I'm joining their advisory board, and I am excited to be establishing a partnership with newenautics.org. And part of that partnership is that I'm going to be featuring other key members of their advisory board and team on future fossils in the months to come. As anyone who has listened to this show for a while knows, my favorite kind of psychedelic science is the kind that actually uses psychedelics as an instrument. The conversation on future fossils about that goes at least as far back as episode 88 with Dennis McKenna, which I highly recommend. And it's really something that's only becoming possible in the public sphere right now. So yes, a very exciting time. But all of these advances have and long histories, and it feels like the faster things move, the more that these histories are occluded by the eruption of the novelty volcano in which we live. So again, I'm very, very grateful and pleased not only to call Ken Adams my friend, but to provide this totally unprecedented and exclusive interview. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for your support. Enjoy this fascinating, bizarre, profound, soulful conversation. And of course, please subscribe, review, and rate the show. Thank you. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Ken Adams. Who even are you? I know so much about you, but I I don't know even more. All right. Tell me your your story. Tell me where you were where were you born? Who are your parents? What was your childhood? Well, I want the I want the early, early. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I looked at my boss. He said, get back online. I shoveled four terabytes of number four code. My boss man said, bless your soul. So I went into technology early, if that's what you mean. (laughs) Give me a city. So I was born in Monroe, Louisiana. My dad was a scientist engineer. My mom was a Cajun, uh, life-loving person. Weird things happened. Almost blew up the planet for some trouble in Cuba. And that night I started being very interested in how to save the planet because it appeared obvious to me in 1962 that uh, the adults had gotten us into a mess and that the solutions would have to come from a a different generation. So when psychedelics finally came around, um, meaning for me, Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and uh, it cleared. It was clear to me that it would be an invaluable asset in trying to figure out all these challenges that we were facing. And I became an adult when I was 12 years old because of watching Kennedy on TV telling us to, you know, get ready in your bomb shelters because we had some disagreements with these people called Cubans and Russians. So 
first chance I got, I was really interested in psychedelics and uh, have been doing them for pretty much my whole adult life. Wait, so wait, since what age? Oh, for the psychedelics, probably very mild use, like just recreational mushroom use, because you could just go pick mushrooms out of the fields in Louisiana and... It was a way to get high without having to spend a lot of money. But it wasn't a psychedelic thing. It was just a kind of buzz thing. And it wasn't until I was in grad school that I really I ran into a guy that was a former uh, um, player with the uh, Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who were a bunch of people that got together to make massive amounts of psychedelics, LSD in particular, in order to help bring the Vietnam War to an end. And so a lot of that stuff was done just for the sake of doing it. And this guy that I was in my graduate program at University of Texas, Austin, was an ex-member of this thing, and he had gone beyond the statutes of limitation and was writing a dissertation about LSD and distribution networks and this kind of stuff. And he gave me a bunch of really amazingly clean, beautiful LSD and said... You know, have some nice music and, you know, don't eat this and this, but don't eat that. And I just jumped in and I like went for, I mean, I did a lot of LSD and peyote and mushrooms, of course, and uh, for years. And it was just uh, a beatific kind of thing. It was just blessings. There was no... uh, it wasn't blurst. It wasn't a blessing and a curse. It was only a blessing. And that led me into trying to figure out how to give this kind of piece of the puzzle into the discussion about how to manage the end of our times and the beginning of new times. And it seemed like you could scale up with things like LSD a lot more than I could with poetry or something, you know. And I also was raised in a technical family where I knew when computers came around, I would want to be involved with them some way. So it coincided with my work as an artist. And I, uh, started doing psychedelic art on computers and with computers. Not just that, but that's what took up most of the time. So wait, you went to grad school for what now? Sociology and anthropology. I was writing. At UT Austin? Yeah. And they told me to forget the word psychedelic or just go somewhere else. <laughs> so I was trying to write a dissertation. What year was that? Hmm. I wanted to make a disclaimer right away here. I think we ought to conduct this with the attitude that what I say is unreliable and I'm an unreliable narrative with a fact-free epistemology. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. But I guess I left Austin, left graduate school in 1980 and moved to San Francisco and got involved with the art world there and the psychedelic world and some of the same people that I'd been hearing about for years through these networks were just they were just there <laughs> and going to the same parties and events and stuff that I was. So I got really involved in that part of it for a while. And, you know, it kind of it led really directly to meeting Terrence McKenna. And that really, that experience is the biggest hash mark in my, my whole life besides myself and my kids. And it just interrupted my life in a really wonderful way. And challenged me to have faith in some pretty miraculous things that are around psychedelics if you're looking at them from a spiritual point of view and a creative point of view psychedelics are unbelievably wonderful and reveals the first time i did lsd i remember thinking 
well, at least now I know there is a heaven. And if I need to, I can get back to that heaven. It's not going to require any particular intervention by, you know, an angry desert warlord, anything like that. It was just deciding to do it. And then you explored it with your friends and your lovers. And it was a very exciting time because there wasn't any history yet about LSD. There really was very little about any kind of psychedelics that you could actually get and read. So people learned by becoming friends with people that were also interested in these subjects and the other people started finding each other in different ways, even after the kind of weird suppression, not weird, horrifying suppression during some of those years and the Reagan years and the Bush years, people were going to jail and stuff. Friends of ours just got out of jail and they don't talk about that very much. But it took a lot of courage for people to stay engaged and do risky things to make psychedelia available to people that otherwise wouldn't be able to find it. And that was very exciting. And leads to the art stuff and all that kind of thing. I want to ask you about meeting Terrence. I was living in the Lower East Side in New York, and it was a really... Uh, like a very uh, wild period, like the parks were full of people living in the parks, Rastafarians, crazy people, punk rockers, tourists that got lost. You know, it was a very active outdoor scene going around in the movement of neo-expressionists was full blast. And I'm living there doing a bunch of things with other people that are involved in psychedelics and art and some pretty real mainstream, very famous artist people that I got to work with just make a living. And one day I'm in the only organic grocery store in the Lower East Side, and I hear this guy on the speaker with a very funny voice talking about psychedelics in a completely intelligent way and without any apologetic element to it at all. And I just sat down on the floor in this grocery store to wait until the program was over to find out who was this guy, and it was Terrence McKenna being interviewed by Ralph Metzner, an OG psychedelic guy from the Harvard days. And I don't even remember what he talked about. He just talked reasonably about psychedelics without fear and being intimidated. And I went home and I told my, my lover, you know, I'm going to wrap things up here and move to California and try to find this guy. And I'd really like for you to come with me. And we basically took two, three months to get there. I go to one of my favorite friends in that psychedelic underworld that I was talking about, and we tell him what's been happening, and I've got this new computer I got a grant to get a computer with and <laughs> to do experimental media, but I had never made any experimental media. So I was like, I had this big, nice computer, some new tools, and I go to this guy and I say, do you have any idea how to find Terrence McKenna? Do you even know his name? And he got a big grin on his face, like a coyote grin. And he tapped this pad of paper next to his old school phone. This is before answering machines that for a lot of people. And there was one phone number written in pencil on this pad and nothing else. And he just tapped it again. And I said, that's literally his phone number, and he just tapped it again and said, call it right now. And I called it, and then I won't go into details, but I immediately got in touch. Like within, you know, two minutes, I got in touch with Terrence, and he was at Esalen Institute, 
we talked for a few minutes and he asked me if I wanted to drive down there and meet him and talk about doing some work together because we were both excited about computers and obviously psychedelics. And I drove down there with my lover and met them there. He was there with his family and doing this big weekend seminar thing. We smoked a bunch of pot under a tree when he was wearing weird bug-eyed sunglasses. And at the end of it, he said, you know, you guys are the only people I know that own a computer like this yet. And you don't have any money and you're driving all the way from New York to meet me. Why don't you just move to where I live so it makes it a lot easier for us to get rolling. And we were like, okay, sure. Like, tell us where you live. <laughs> and we moved right, it was out in the Redwoods and up near a place called Occidental in Northern California and a little tiny place called Camp Meeker that used to be a summer camp. It had its own swimming hole, and it was surrounded with redwood trees, and all the houses looked like hobbit houses. And it was really funny and really wonderful. And we were only like a few hundred yards from Terrence's house. So we just started working together with the computer stuff because like, literally nobody knew how to even use these computers yet. There weren't any YouTube videos. There was no there was no place to go for solid information except passing it around among individuals. And we just started immediately <laughs> doing videos and trying to figure out a way to coordinate all this prosumer stuff with tapes and trying to mix it into the digital, you know, realm. And it was it's interesting. This movie that the Alien Dreamtime movie was made that way and with very first generation computer graphics that you could manipulate and also have in video, which led to us making Alien Dreamtime and a bunch of other stuff. I don't understand the transition from analog to digital as deeply as I would like. It's, just, it's a miserable story. <laughs> you used to have to have this one pulse called the house signal to do video, and it would coordinate all these machines, which were tape machines. They'd have to all rewind in unison and then start back up again and synchronize, and then it would kick in. And if you didn't get it right, you had to do it over. But not worse than that, if you wanted to change something at the beginning of a videotape where you noticed a mistake, it fucked up everything after it. There was no digital tape editing, video editing yet at all. I was like a beta tester for Premiere in that period, and it was very arduous to make video. It wasn't much fun. So you had to mix these pulse signals with every camera and deck in the system for it to record everything at the same time. It was insanely black magic kind of stuff. You could get an interference signal and just lose a whole night of work <sighs> because you could hear something in the background going and not have heard it on the audio. It's in, happened on the other side of your earphones. So it was a very puzzling time, and the rave scene was starting when everybody knew computers were going to be part of that. And I had a, a wealthy patron that gave me a, a really expensive projector, and nobody had a, a projector, much less a really good one. So I was invited to do all, a lot of the very first raves in America as a video projectionist. And, you know, I was already bald and silver-haired and... Like the very beginning of this stuff, you know, like the the late 80s. And I still do that. And that's been a long time. <laughs> so 
I just got involved with it and just enmeshed by it and felt a lot of faith in the uh, the capacities of psychedelics in general to open not just healing from trauma type things, but also open doors of creativity and imagination that enriched our entire culture. And I still think that's a very basic principle that anything you can do that really brings nuance and beauty and mystery into the world, even if nobody but you sees it, you've made the world a better place. And that's what I try to do. I really don't put much energy into anything else except making digital psychedelic art and hanging out with a few people I love. I want to talk with you about the first screening of Alien Dreamtime. That's kind of interesting. We uh, we did The event was in 93, and we raised a little bit of money to go into an editing studio and took a few months because we were having to work you know, on off hours and stuff. And the first time I'm pretty sure anybody saw it, we were visiting Austin and my family in Houston, and we had a copy of it on a high eight digital high eight tape. It's a small tape format and completely obscure at this point. But we realized we had a copy of a really rough copy of the movie, and so we went to the the movie theater, the Adobe Theater, I think, or Adobe Theater in Austin. It's next to the campus, and it was Christmas holiday, and we just walked in off the street. Literally, we had a baby, a one-year-old baby with us, <laughs> my son Zephan. And uh, we walked up to the thing, went to the office, and we talked to this guy that was the programming guy for the theater, and he said, well, it's Christmas. There's not a lot of students around, so I'll rent you the, the theater for a week if you want to rent it. And I said, yeah, what's it cost, you know? And it was, you know, it was a number that we certainly didn't have. And uh, met... I went down to Quackenbush Coffee Shop to find somebody that looked like they might know what a rave was to have pass out flyers and stuff for us. And the first night we were there, there were like 200 people that were turned away. There wasn't enough space in the theater. And I made more money that night than I needed to pay for the whole week of the rental. So from that night, everything was just gravy. And we were people that like, I worked for an hourly wage in a museum carrying boxes. <laughs> so it was like an amazing revelation that there was a possibility of making a living doing really serious psychedelic work. And so we showed it like seven times in Austin from this one little tape. <laughs> and then we went back to San Francisco and we went to a place called the Roxy, which is a really cool old vintage theater that's been there forever. And the uh, that midnight movie, the one with the, the people at the mansion full of weird people. <laughs> it's a funny comedy. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. At any rate, they were doing, for the first time, they were a midnight movie screening kind of. Um, Is there about Big Chill? or No, it's a comedy, and it's like Dr. Frankenfurter. And, oh, uh, oh, Rocky Horror? Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show. They were like making money every Saturday night, hardcore, all over the place. So I just went in and said, hey, why don't we do a month of like Saturday night midnight screenings? It won't cost you anything. And if we make some money, we'll just split it okay and they were like yeah let's try it and it was again the same thing i made so much money compared to what i had to do to earn a living it was like well yeah follow this out you know this is just the beginning yes it is san francisco it's not you know someplace in delaware or michigan or iowa 
it's the heart of psychedelia, so you're going to get some response there about anything that you put a little risk into and take some chances. Being on the edge is very valued in that scene, and it was definitely considered on the edge when we started screening. It was real obvious. It was great. It also was one of the first movies to go viral on YouTube before they switched to MOV and they were still doing Flash format. Mm. An SEO guy from Google sat with me one day with Alan Watts and he started digging through the SEO data stuff and he goes, dude, you've had over 3 million downloads. You were in a, like a group of less than a hundred videos in YouTube's history at the time, which was very short. And we don't understand it. And I was like, I don't understand it either, but I wish I got a dollar for each of those <laughs> or a quarter or a dime or even, you know, just thank you. But we get a lot of thanks. You had got a lot of that. It is interesting how he has perfused the psychedelic space. I think he kind of revalorized it. I think he brought back dignity and courage and principle to it to where it had just been kicked into the gutter by the authoritarians that were running the government and treating people really brutally for having psychedelics on their persons. And I think he just had the courage to stand up and say, look, this is bullshit. We need all this stuff we can get. It's a, The house is on fire. You know, it's like a, it's a what do they call it? A... a Good Samaritan clause when you you realize this you got to do something you know you have to do something if you really look at the world and what's happening around you we both felt obliged to do something about it and we talked a lot about tilting history that's about what you can do when you're only a few people you gather in another community of other like-minded communities like the festival world and you start spreading ideas, and you don't let them just get pushed into the sand. You you have to stand up for it at times, and that's been a big part of the last 30 years. So how long were you in, like, regular communication? Uh, four or five years, like in when we were really working, sometimes several days a week, and we lived really close, and we would we were... They were involved with each other's families. And, um, you know, we, Terrence didn't go to many events that he wasn't speaking at or something. And he didn't party very much. And we were able to tease him out a little to go out and talk to people that, you know, were in, into a new version of psychedelia that's coming mostly from England, which became the rave scene. And he just thought that that sounds impossible. In fact, the first time I went to Terrence's house and we were talking about doing some experimental videos and uh, he and his wife Kat were there and, you know, just chatting up the op the possibilities. And I said, well, maybe you guys have some, like, some favorite, like, musical soundtrack stuff, like, that, you know, you might associate with the work and all and we could use that. And they said, oh, yeah, we've got something great. And they went and they got this big old box and it was everything in the box was a different set from the Grateful Dead, a set tape, everything. And I said, well, is this all Grateful Dead music? And they said, yeah, every one of them. And I was like, do you have any other records or anything like that that you're kind of like fond of? And I, well, not really. We just listened to the Grateful Dead. And also Terrence used to walk around in Birkenstocks with white 
bell bottoms and Hawaiian shirts more than once, and he should have been arrested. <laughs> it was such a it was such a fashion violation. Sometimes to be in, you, some people thought he was just being funny, but it wasn't. It was like he was still sort of this hippie geek in his own way. I mean, that honestly sounds like very very comfortable wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can understand that. But when you're on a foggy night in San Francisco and you're like having to look over your shoulder and stuff, he stood out. <laughs> Let me just say. Was he, I mean, like, are we talking about like a man out of time? Like, you know, because there's this piece about this, which is, you know, the time wave, right? And the creode, the landscape of time and possibility. And he saw it. My own encounter with psychedelics, I saw both of my kids before they were born. You know, I've had multiple times. Like, I had a whole relationship with my kids before they were born. I understand that, yeah. How did he orient himself? How did he process being displaced in that way? Like, seeing the thing, being like up on the perch. One thing that he said more than once was the worst part of being Terrence McKenna was being Terrence McKenna and that the expectations around him were so confining, both because they appealed to your ego constantly, but also because they were rarely up to speed on whatever he happened to really be thinking about at any given time. So he could test out ideas, but it was also you really had to kind of deal with the fact that once he became a bit of a celebrity, people really expected things from him that weren't reasonable. They were celebrity problems and stuff. And I think he would have loved to have uh, been able to manage his, uh, his dharma on a more private level. At some levels, he was sort of an elitist when we would talk about whether or not we had we should be headed toward a universal psychedelia or an elitist psychedelia. And it was a pretty regular discussion among the circle of those intellectuals and stuff in California and Northern California in particular about which way to go with that because people were still being put in prison and their families being blown up by being engaged with it. And it, for quite a while there, there was almost no action going on in the psychedelic realm except for some very clandestine projects built around LSD being manufactured offshore and all sorts of things. That uh, There was definitely a consistent underground during all those years, but it shrunk down very, very much. And one thing Terrence would say at every public event, at the end of it, he'd say look around you and, and notice and acknowledge the others because these are the people that check you out at the grocery store, that you know teach your kids at kindergarten. These are the people that you want to know because you wouldn't be in this room if you weren't interested in psychedelics. So I know we all have to whisper about it, but the more you do talk to one another, help each other make their music, help people get their book published, do this stuff together because you're a community and you've been marginalized by brutality, don't let it in there. Do it. Take it on and you'll be rewarded because he thinks nature rewards courage. A dubious concept, but one that has inspired me occasionally. Why do you think that's dubious? Because I know a lot of shitty stuff that's happened, and I think um, 
not in any absolute sense at all, but I'm kind of equally mystified by the the horror of the world as I am by the wonder of the world. And I have to play a very, uh, I have to prompt myself toward one direction and not the other because getting dark for too long leads to bad stuff. You know, it leads to great sadness and you know loneliness of a particular kind. I mean, it certainly seems to be the case, though, that you know, many, many, many people have said that the gods meet you halfway. Terrence was pretty clear on that. And I, I don't know, it, it comes up now because I think about us living in, and we're totally spoiling the plot here, but, you know, here we are. This is it. This is, I mean... I think he would have felt very validated. Yeah, I think he pretty much always felt validated, but yeah. (laughs) I think he had a lot of confidence in himself. I think he would have felt validated that uh, the world is as trippy as it is now and that more or less... So Okay, so I'm going to invoke my friend Tristan Gulliford, who was Daniel Pinchbeck's first hire for Evolver back when it was a magazine. What was his name again? Tristan. Tristan Gulliford. He lives up in Durango. I met him in Boulder. I met him and Daniel at the same time. And like, you know, and Tristan and I have been locked in this debate since forever about 2012. He's like, ha ha, obviously didn't happen. You know, I feel so stupid. How could I have been so stupid to have cleaved to these people? And I look at it and I'm like, I don't know what you thought you were expecting, but we're talking about geological time. And we're talking about an inflection point on a a sigmoidal curve, you know, where you're talking about a phase transition from one thing to the next thing. And I remain convinced and am so more every day that Terrence was right in that 2012 marked a kind of node on the other side of which things have just continued to get acceleratingly weird. And they were already acceleratingly weird, but it happened that, you know, this is a real, I've gone through this in all sorts of angles. Terrence was, as he says in the movie we're going to see tomorrow, he says you can use the calendar for a sledgehammer. Just use the Mayan calendar as a way to focus all this possibility and stuff, not because he thought it was inevitably true in any sense at all, but he thought it was strategically very valuable to create this mythology around a single date and attract all this energy and attention and controversy. And then no matter what else happens, there'll be thousands, if not millions of people around the globe tripping their balls off, falling in love, impregnating each other, all sorts of stuff. They'll have revelations. They'll think they saw this or that. So no matter what happens, it happens. But on the same time, Terrence we spent a lot of time before that point deciding what would be the pivot point in time. And he decided that the uh, explosion of the first nuclear bomb should be the, the fulcrum of which all the other math 
worked on. But way before it got to be something significant, he knew full and well because his friends told him, mathematically, this is just a puppet show. It's like not real mathematically. And he was like, who cares? Have you ever listened to the story of the leprechauns? You know, and he would just like, he didn't care about facticity at that level. He saw it as a strategic opportunity. And I kept saying, look, what you really ought to be doing, instead of acting like the world's going to end, is saying, I'm going to have a 2013 art festival, okay? And I'm going to have a conceptual thing that's out there in the internet in the beginning of all that stuff. And talk about perseverance, you know, instead of like people trying to apocalypse it into, you know, a, a tragedy somehow. Yeah. So were we together? Were you there? I mean, where were like seven of us out at Blanco and it got down to 17 degrees. I remember going to the freezer at Blanco to open it up and getting inside because it was only 32 degrees. <laughs> and I was like, this feels like an oven right now. You talking about the winter solstice of 2012? Uh, the, the, that was it, yeah. Were you there? <laughs> I was not. No, I winter solstice of 2012 was... <laughs> I... I was living in Austin. Nikki was living in Boulder, but she was moving. She was leaving Boulder and she was, was going to test it out in Austin. And so she was driving back, but there was a freak snowstorm and then she had car problems. So she got stranded in it's a town in West Kansas where they invented the helicopter. Goodland, Goodland, Kansas. And Good land. Yeah, 1940. And she and I were there because my friend Lonnie Gordon, circus performer and aerial fabric artist that used to do work with me tandem while I, I was playing music, she was going to go back up to Boulder. And I was like, can you get, you know, can you get me a ride? We met in Lawrence, Kansas. She hooked me and grabbed me and she tossed me over there. And we were in a hotel room, like just like a motel, 5.21 a.m. I remember this on the solstice of 2012. I remember we took acid that night. With a lot of other people. But, I, but it was just funny because I was like, we were probably the only people tripping in like a hundred mile radius, <laughs> like where we were. And I was like, this is why this is, I was like, what a strange set of circumstances that we ended up here, you know? And I was like, but that's where it needed to be. So there was like, it was like her car had to break down so that there was even coverage, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's just total woo-woo. <laughs> I try not to give into the total woo-woo. I definitely indulge in a lot of it. Oh, come on. You said you were, you were transfacticity. <laughs> I am. See, I can contradict myself with a clear mind. It's okay. Speaking of which, like if you listen to the two nights in Alien Dreamtime in full, which we drew out a single program out of video-wise, there are critical elements in the movie where Terrence says, and the last sane moment our civilization ever knew was, and then he'll just pick something out of the past. And then every time I heard him give this talk, it was a different thing. <laughs> And it was like, you know, he just, he said the story is much more important than the facts. And that's just the way it is. And uh, he's Irish. He's totally fucking Irish, dude. 
he like does this moment in Alien Dreamtime, no, in Imaginatrix, where he's talking about a book on fairies that we had both read and how it was the last book of the fairy religion that really released. And um, he just stops for a moment and pauses and looks down with his eyes closed. And then he comes back up and he's got this elfish prankster face. And he says, you must have the second sight or else it is no use to you. And then he kind of gives this crazy-ass grin and then looks down again and comes back up in his sarcastic, smart-ass intellectual place, <laughs> which is where he spent most of his time. Thank God. He was fun to talk to about anything, so you wanted him to talk. Well, let's talk about his death. So I'm sitting in a video studio east side of Austin, working very, very late on a project after hours because I could afford the after hours part. And really late at night, I had done all this editing and I was going to have to let it render on the computer before I could go home. So I set it off to render and there was a boom box somebody had left behind. And I thought, well, I'm going to look for that guy, uh, coast to coast guy, <laughs> and see if he's got anything interesting. You know what I'm talking about? The art. Art Bell yeah. and the other guy that came after him. Oh, yeah. I think it was the second. Nori. I yeah, I think it was George Nori. We could find out, but again, facts are so slow. Uh, so I'm sitting there, and I've really only listened to maybe three or four of these programs, but I know it's on late at night and a strong signal, and it might just divert me from falling asleep. And I dial in, and he's talking to some hippie intellectual guy about something totally woo. And he cuts to commercial, and when he comes back, he says, we've received some really unfortunate news that our good friend Terrence McKenna is in a hospital in Hawaii right now, and we're sending friends of ours over there to see what they can find out, but we're going to terminate the rest of the program, and we're going to spend the rest of the program doing prayerful uh, mindfulness of Terrence needing our help. And that's how I found out, like in fucking real time, in the studio, in a situation where I can't even remember a single time I ever like pulled out a boombox to listen to Art Bell or George Clory, what his name is. Anyway, so that's how I found out. And then a good friend of ours was living in the Big Island where Terrence was in the hospital. And he went down and ended up sitting in the emergency room for several hours and got some of the first news that he had him really terrible brain tumor and it was the same kind of cancer that my mother died from my grandfather died from my best friend nick west died from and one other soul that i can't recall immediately off the top and they always call it a very rare form of cancer that's crock of shit so it would seem i mean i i'm curious i don't remember if it was you who figured this for me but i definitely heard from someone that the man had a huge satellite antenna, like dish, on his house in Hawaii. I've heard people question whether he had just irradiated himself. There was nothing unusual size when I was there, but there were many years afterwards, and he looked into getting a line-of-sight connection that was basically a military-type laser connection to the Internet because there was no way to be on the Internet 
in Hawaii on the mountain at all. So after we left, we went there to consider living there on the property with my partner and our kid. And there was just no economy in Hawaii at the time. Everything was closed and closed up and there weren't even tourists. And there was just no way to do any computer work on the internet. So we came back to the mainland. But after we left, he might have looked into something that I don't even know about. I mean, having internet was very important. And if even if it cost a lot of money and gave you a, a cancer th- story in the background, you might engage in it. You know, especially like Terrence, he really would love to be aware of the world. And the internet brings the world to your 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 little papaya hut in the jungle. That's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't have walls. They didn't even have walls in the places they lived because you just didn't need them. They just had netting. It was wonderful. I really would have. I wish I would have been able to stay there for a year or two at least. But I mean, but that's you know that take it all in to absorb everything. I don't know. It strikes me that it's all part of a sort of holographic portrait of. You know, I, I like, for instance, I think about like the transmutation of trauma and how catfish eating the no, shit. No, I don't know. You'll have to explain. What do you mean we were catfish? Eating the shit, you know? Like oh, the, we're shit eaters. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you know. Shit eating, grin off your face. It's like, it's like everybody absorbs so much in their life. And I, you know, that's. It's been amped up too. We live through very high anxiety time right now. Well, so, okay, so, and then after that, you kept making movies. You kept doing it. Yeah. Let's go. What happened? Like, how did you? You know, I I knew where I was in this historical moment of the very beginning of digital arts and digital everything, and I had a very clear view of what the implications were. An interesting story connected to this was when I first got my computer to make this stuff on this Amiga computer. I was living in the Lower East Side in a six-floor walk-up, and um, I wanted to take a bunch of LSD and go into my computer and groove with the vibe of the silicon the way they did in Tron, except with a lot more class. (laughs) And we had this mandala thing that came with the computer, and you could just sit in front of it, and it would very effectively send you into altered states. So I ate a bunch of acid and sat in front of this computer that was brand new and very exotic and turned on the mandala. And instantly I'm like, blam, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in Silicon universe and not my universe, but their universe. And they are they, they are not it. And they gave me this really serious kind of talking to and said, look, your species is wrecking it for all the other species. And that'll only go on so far. And if you, we're deliberately accelerating the growth of this crystalline aspect of the planet, which has become silicon, but it's still the same silicon that you wear around your neck in a quartz crystal and, you know, this kind of thing. And they said very explicit to me, me, explicit as you could be, if you continue to work for the benefit of the planet and the preservation of life on the planet, we'll always find you a way out of any dead ends you come to with with the, the silicon part of the opportunity. And explicitly, like if you're working on something and you come to a creative dead end, just take your hand off the mouse, breathe a few times, and maybe say ohm a few times, and then ask us to be present and 
do your thing. And I've been doing that for well over 30 years and it still works. If I'm stuck at a place where I don't feel any juice, I close my eyes. I like maybe even put my fingertips on my, <laughs> my laptop pad and just vibe with it for a minute and say, I need some you know, encouragement here. And they always show me how to do something that I've never done before. And most of those things, once I did them once, I never did them again, and I couldn't do them again. I have no idea how to make those things again, because they took many, many layers of iterations and just clues. What's taking my attention? What's asking for more? What's telling me less? And working within that realm was like, Amazing. I mean, we don't really even have room to talk about things that are that weird and miraculous, but psychedelic people experience them quite often, way often. Just a little loop out to ask, what do you make of they, them? Like, what do you, what do you, you know, because Terrence obviously went off on all kinds of lengthy and eloquent confabulations about what he what kind of entities he thought he was encountering and what what about you How, did you ever make up your mind about it or i could go how? on to some lengthy irrational conjectures <laughs> kindly <laughs> well it depends on i've actually had a few i'm sure you're talking about like anomalous you know entities and stuff i kind of am to me, it's almost confusing that people that commit so much time and energy to the issue of are there other entities that are non-human, I don't have to quote Terrence. It's like anybody that's done enough DMT knows that there are all sorts of other entities. Some of them are incredibly brilliant, and it would be insulting to consider that they are somehow my projection of myself. That's... That would be like thinking that because the Beatles are on TV, that that's me being that talented or some <laughs> shit. Like, it's not the same thing. They're entities and they have will and they have temptation and they have guidance and they have healing if you're needing healing, different ones. So, for me, I live in a world where there are just incountable number of encounters with non human entities. I literally, honestly consider myself more than human. I consider myself to be a person that has alien elements in my current life form. I also firmly believe, as a fact free endorser of the weird, that I live in a universe with multiple time streams and that sometimes they converge and sometimes they're really so close to each other that I can't tell which one's the present one that I'm supposed to be attending to. So I, I'm like pretty far out there. I don't, I don't, I'm not looking for data. I'm trying to make interesting stories. I'm trying to encourage people that are like overwhelmed by the weird shit and that's not happy shit. Serving the common good is the only thing that matters much to me. And that extends to the planet and life in general, life beyond the planet. And I feel like that's what I'm here for. I've had these really high dose LSD experiences when I was back into that mode. And I got this messaging very pretty predictably i could with my lover we would use tantric sex to go to other realms and um one of them was very repeatable and involved this kind of interesting cohort of entities of which we were among and they were voluntarily being seeded into the earth orb of things happening randomly 
in order to help this transition away from self-annihilation and destruction and brutality that we find ourselves in now. And ever since the atomic bomb dropped, the alarm's been going off in our heads that this is not a good way to go. And we need all this stuff to like conjure up more imaginative solutions and more willful involvement with the love of of the whole, like, I love humanity, I love my kids special, and I love my friends special, but I also love humanity. I'm like, it breaks my heart to think there's even a vague chance of destroying all the insane levels of beauty and kindness and charity and tenderness and making love and listening to good music and just on and on and on and on and on, all these miracles that we walk our way around all the time with barely even knowing that they're a miracle because we're so accustomed to it. But they are. They're all miracles. All that stuff is insanely, crazily weird when you stop and think about we can share this conversation, we can share some music from some other century, and at the same time, we're all one thing. There's only one thing. There can only be reality. And if there's weirdness in the world, even if it's just me and you that think we're weird, no, the world itself is weird. Reality itself is necessarily weird. It's not going to generate enough differentials, delta zones, with just following the rules. You need to have people that are willfully abandoning the expectations laid on them by rationality and churches and other, you know, institutions of darkness. <laughs> Excelsior! <Yeah. laughs> oh, God. Oh, my Jesus. Or anyone else. So, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thank you, first of all. That was Olay. That was... I didn't see that coming. I guess now's a good time to... Do we need to take a potty break or... Actually, I could take a pee break, but yeah. I did want to ask my consultant, am I getting myself into trouble? <laughs> no. Not yet. At this point, we took a short break, and I recorded a second part of this conversation on my smartphone, but that phone was destroyed, so <laughs> sorry. I'll just use this opportunity to say that if you are thirsty for more of my conversations with Ken Adams after listening to this, then go check out the 2013 prologue to this conversation that I've linked in the show notes. Thanks again, and here we go. Okay, uh, I want to tell a story about something that happened to me and abruptly changed my life again. And it involves an experience with Terrence McKenna many years after his death. And I, don't, I can't be precise about this stuff. I literally don't have the memory coordination to do this with any accuracy, and it makes things too slow. But I was out on a camping trip. <laughs> We just had a cat do a censoring moment. I was out on a camping trip in Colorado. I mean, yeah, in Colorado with my family. And um, we were camping at sort of high altitude and a little bit off trail. And uh, I had a new cool high definition camera. And 
we had a cool fire and i got down on my knees while wearing a baseball cap and my glasses and was taking footage of the fireplace which is something i had done dozens of times and while i was down there there was a pop in the fire and a cinder somehow flew over the edge of my glasses and um, landed on the iris of my right eye and uh, basically fried it off and like a second it was like turned into little chunks of charcoal and it was insanely painful and um and freaky i'm an artist and i realized i had just like lost my sight very quickly and instantly almost and um we had to wait till dawn because the drive out of the place we were at was too dangerous to try to drive at night. And we went to a hospital and they told me we can't do anything. They wouldn't even give me fucking like Advil. <laughs> and they said, but there's a guy in town in Colorado Springs, not Colorado Springs, and the town where the university is on the north side of Denver, uh, Fort Collins. And there happened to be a guy there that was doing, among other things, he was an eye surgeon and he was doing stem cell research and rejuvenating damaged eyes. And they said, we can call him and see if he has time to see you. And the guy immediately sent back, send this guy over. And he explained this technique to me when we got together early in the morning and gave me pain relief on my eye instantly so I could actually be somewhat intelligible about what was being happening. And he told me, he asked me if I could meditate and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm going to leave you alone for a while. And when you're comfortable, we can come back in and do this, but you're going to have to be conscious and you're going to have to look to the left and look to the right when I'm literally scraping out pieces of carbonized tissue from your eye. And then we will scrape back to where the stem cells hopefully are. And if it goes okay, you'll need to go someplace and get a room, as quiet a room as you can, as dark as possible, and you'll have to send your family away for maybe up to a week before you should be talking or using facial muscles in any way. And you'll be best to meditate and fast in a dark silent room so after the surgery uh, I did exactly that and after two or three days of being in the darkness and meditating I was hallucinating wildly and in very unexpected directions like around medieval things and things it was very very perplexing in some ways but also expected because I'd read about people like being in isolation and stuff and I knew that at some point hallucinations would start so we go through the period I go back into the doctor and he's like totally flipped out he said I've only done two of these and only one of those was successful and yours is already better than the people the person I that did was a success is still not nearly as rejuvenated as your lens is he said you can go out camping again but wear a pirate patch over your eye and don't get near a fire or any showers or water. Don't get in the river. And then come back in like three days and let's see what's happened after that. So I go back out with my family camping again. And I'm very nostalgic because I'm afraid I might lose my sight and I might not be able to be this person I wanted to be and love being with visual art. 
So it was a kind of emotionally very high, very prompted thing. Plus, I went around and took pictures of people getting ready in their tents with their lights flashing against the outside of tents in an intrusive way. And I got my kids to go in and do these things. And so I was in this kind of slightly melancholy mind space. My kids are really happy that I seem like I'm going to be okay. Everything seems like it's pretty groovy. We go to sleep that night, and in the middle of the night, in a place that's not a dream, and it's not like tripping, and the only really other thing there at the beginning is Terrence McKenna. And he's communicating with me and very directly saying, I'm like, I'm talking to you. I'm communicating with you from beyond the veil. And yeah, I'm in this interim phase where I'm not completely out of this realm. And we should have a really great conversation. And the first thing we need to do is make up a simulation of reality that we both feel comfortable in, but that does has a lot of fog in the background, so you don't have to worry about details emerging and shit. And it was this really funny, technical kind of conversation to like set up, in today's language, a series of visual prompts and stuff to have this conversation, much like Jodie Foster had in contact with her father, so to speak, that was actually an alien trying to represent a thing that she could understand and deal with and have an appropriate conversation. And so we started talking about all sorts of things, and this experience lasted what would be at least an hour in normal time, just in terms of languaging and making jokes and things. And some of the most fascinating things that he told me, and it was a stack, he said we were both interested in something they called statistical improbable phrases that were something Amazon used to attach to certain books. And it was just something we thought was funny because anything statistically improbable that shows up out of context usually looks pretty funny. And we would send them to each other or, you know, we would look for notice them when we were looking at books and stuff. And so he said, here's a group of statistically improbable phrases. And when you hear them in, back in, in, the, in the normal world, when you hear them spoken by somebody, they will always absolutely be either a benefactor or a collaborator on this movie I'm going to try to talk you into making. And I was like, well, let's talk about that first. And he's like, well, you're the only guy left that has any footage of me that nobody's seen. You're the only guy that actually made an intelligent project based on my thinking during that lifetime period. And you kind of walked away and took care of a family and got that kind of thing going, but the house is on fire and we really need you at your station making art. And I hope you make this arty movie about me. And we would laugh about it. It was very personable. And there were a few helpers in this scene, like that at, there was a middle-aged woman that was kind of matronly and friendly, and Terrence would have to turn his attention to something because he was transiting to the other world, and he had other like helpers, two or three helpers, helping him move things and get things in order. And then this woman would reiterate whatever we had just talked about so that I would have a better chance of remembering it. And she told me, that's exactly what I'm here for. I'm going to tell you what you just talked about so you'll have more recall over what's going on during this thing. And it just kept going on and on and on. And 
too long of a thing to go too much further with, but it became like an ontological crisis. I can't believe I get to say it. And in the next few days, I was camping with my kids out like in Yellowstone, and every time we would go out, somebody in a bookstore, at a campfire, at a geyser, somebody would walk up to me out of fucking nowhere and start a conversation and at some point say, my old friend Terrence McKenna made this necklace I'm wearing. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so everywhere I went for a couple of weeks, and my kids were witness to this, people from out of nowhere would come up and start talking to me about Terrence. And it just blew my mind. I knew, oh, my God, I have to go home and stop what I'm doing and get on this project and literally when we got home finally after the camping adventure and all these things just piled up the first night i got home everybody's fed they're in bed asleep i go to my computer and immediately start making my ideas i'm going to immediately start taking my private art stuff off my computer that i use for my job and separating it from the business stuff so that i can just isolate my work and and make a copy of it and when i turn on my computer in the very center of the screen, in the very center of the desktop was one folder, and it said Terrence McKenna audio samples. And I hadn't seen these things in like at least 10 years. I had no reason to see them. I didn't even know I had them. And all of a sudden, there's 12 of them in a folder. I click on the very first one, and I'm having chills right now because it was so intensely weird Terrence's voice comes on and says, I'm speaking to you from the imagination, the imaginatrix, a realm of shaman and the realm of the dead. And he goes on this thing, just like basically, just like fulfilling part of the things he promised. I'll make this easy as I can. You know, I'll facilitate this project getting done of making this movie. And that 12 audio samples basically became the basis of the movie I made called Imaginatrix. So, I think I've told you this before, maybe not. I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast for or not, but when I was living with my wife in Phoenix in 2009, and there was another dream that like that Terrence actually came down into uh, a war between the living and the dead. And this was... He talked about ecologies of souls, but I think he saw that as a symbiotic type thing. I don't, you know, not that your well, dream is the same as his dream, but... He appeared in this way to me in this dream as the eruption of a non-duality from the future, working backwards and saying that the black and white of it was... Yin Yang. Yeah. He's he's like, the war was over. And even further, the war was a mistake, and the original sin was the original prohibition on plants, and not knowledge wasn't a sin, it was a courageous step to take. So from the beginning of our narratives as a culture, we've been hassling people that tried to take their spiritual experiences into their own hands, and other people telling them what they need to believe and how they need to act. And that's been ingrained in our culture from the beginning. And it's very 
important that we figure out how to like peek out from under that now that we understand that there's essentially every indigenous culture known in history has plants and other essential substances to be able to enter these other realms and that that's crucial to get back at you know when you like about dreaming about terence when this stuff was still pretty fresh i ran into a uh read on reality sandwich where somebody was raving about Terrence being a CIA agent because he once said the mushrooms were the CIA of the cosmos and they turned it into a giant conspiracy thing. But in the thread were these other people and they were like three or four in the space of maybe a hundred other responses. But they all basically said, I was out camping one night doing a bunch of mushrooms and I had an encounter with dead Terrence. And I was like, well, whoa, this is, in- this is interesting. What the fuck's going on? And I still am pretty fascinated by that one element of it. And the reason I wanted to bring the whole story up in part, not that reason is a really good motivation or anything, but at any rate, my excuse for bringing it up is in part is to remind people that there are all these traditions where there is life after death and I'm a pretty skeptical person and don't really sign up for anything specific I'm careful to avoid the responsibility but for all practical purposes I can pretty much testify there's life after death and that life is not something of torment and torture but of adventure and delight and that it's like wow you learn all this stuff here on this really weird limited physical plane where we have to pay rent and justify our existence and this stuff but beyond (laughs) that is this other realm that we come from and return to that's realm of spiritual freedom and acknowledgement and creativity and it's much more than just falling into some placid heaven or something it's another state of creativity and this gets very very rich very quick when you actually let death be something like a its own like initiation back into somewhere where you already know but that you've been out of touch with necessarily in order to be a proper human being you have to be in a state of ignorance and figure things out that's the challenge and if you figure out parts of it you still get bits of heaven you don't have to figure it all out i don't think i've ever known anybody that figured out even most of it but everybody i have known that's done enough psychedelics or praying or meditating or tantric sex knows that there's more to it than you know running to your job every day and hoping to not lose your job so that you don't have a place to live or sleep (laughs) that's just so much full of shit we need to really be out of that grow up humans and get rid of that put greed at the bottom of the list and put caring for people at the top of the list make water a sacred right to every living creature make it illegal to own water we can get started at this we can get going at it we already have brilliant people thinking through it but we can't keep being cruel and being a bunch of rich assholes taking everything they want from the system while there are people without legs begging for money in Austin, Texas, next to the big, the new Elon Musk uh, village that he's building. It's just not okay. Being greedy is trashing the, fam- the whole family, but also the whole planet. And I'm totally devoted to putting an end to that stuff. Culture over profit. Culture over profit. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's some danger in that because there are some pretty crazy cultures out there, as we're finding out. But still, the overall general thing is, man, work it out with languaging and and images and music. That's a lot better than war. <laughs> a whole lot better and much more efficient. Again, I think that we've been kind of conned into chasing things that are unhealthy for the whole planet simply because greed is become the sort of the surrogate for any kind of moral purpose in the world. You measure your value by how much you have, and if you can get into outer space ahead of your rival, that's just so dis disturbing to me when there's people that really need help, really need loving care, and need to be free of the terror of being impoverished. It's a nightmare. It's all over the country, all over the world. We need to stop it, and we can in my humble opinion. Not so humble. I want to scale it down. Great. <laughs> I want to scale it down to... We met at some point. <laughs> Where do you think we met? Boy, it's a tricky one because it's... It was at a very active period. You and I and our friends were running from festival to festival and just jumping on a in a car and going someplace. And it was mind-blowing in so many ways. And I really can remember the episode I told you about earlier about being in a dome during a dust storm and this very intense festival in the desert. But other than that, I'm not sure where I exactly where I place meeting. Maybe art outside, maybe. Um, maybe the beginning of the, uh, what was the spore group? I don't know when, what was called? Yeah, Evolver Spore Groups. We might have met at Jordan's house. I met him there that night, and I met a couple other people that were later in the the circle we were all sharing for a while there, and I'm not sure. It's Again, a, facts are so slow. I mean, you know, it's you a just mystery. jump onto the story. It's a mystery, <laughs> yeah. But you are one of the originals for those listening there were three conversations that i recorded before i actually formally became a podcaster that were the sole purpose conversations that were aaron cruz had uh, this web magazine on for visionary art and culture and i interviewed you i interviewed richard doyle and and then I I interviewed S Skytree, Evan oh, Snyder. Cool. Yeah. And Skytree and I went on to start Future Fossils. But like, it was really, I remember being in Austin, talking to you on the phone in the parking lot off <laughs> Old Torf, recording that conversation in the most heinous way this is, you know, it's not you know, there were microphones but they were not they were not professional microphones over a phone too yeah so i was in a car on a phone do you remember what we talked about i don't but it's on the <laughs> evolution.bandcamp.com still ha i still have it up there oh that's hilarious but it could be dangerous yeah we should definitely check it out <laughs> revisit it yeah. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe we should just bury it. <laughs> you know, it's easier to talk about shit that's forbidden 
once you know you're going to die, and that's not a bad thing. It's just like what happens. It's like the tides come in and the tides go out. And at this point in my life, I feel protective of a certain group of people that I just can't talk about some of the most interesting parts because it's still pertinent to their safety and their families. And that's been part of it. You know, it's been a story that you can't really tell a lot of the critical parts because they they put people at risk and that kind of thing. So it's been interesting to get old enough and most everybody's dead now that I am talking about and to not feel as inhibited about it and try to be clever enough to be interesting without talking about things that are dangerous one way or another. So I appreciate it. It's been an interesting thing. Just ramble through stuff. Point being that you were the one that I think really inspired me to take up the practice of oral history. Mm, it's cool. It's pretty efficient and it's very emotionally effective. The audio part of us is deeply rooted and hearing stories is deeply rooted and it's a very powerful thing and I encourage you to do as much of it as you can. I also encourage you to do some kind of weird speaking tour augmented with some kind of media that becomes like a monologue performance piece and just talk about anything. You know, because you're like born to talk. You're like some people are born to play basketball. You're born to talk and you love to think. You love to think on your feet. And I can see that, you know, I can see that as a possible, plausible future for you. Really, really easy clarity. And, you know, it may not have anything at all to do with what you actually do. But I do think you have this gift that you can bring out without having to rely on anybody else to make it valid. You do your own curation of the information that you think is critical and go on stage with the full confidence that you can start anywhere, stop anywhere, and start anywhere else. And it'll still be interesting. And that you don't need any real you know, data collection and shit. Your instincts are your best they're your most resourceful part of your mind is that unique version of it all that only you have and it's not just an opinion off watching science fiction movies you've read a million books you've had a thousand conversations you've interviewed a lot of the world's most interesting people and that all adds up to this incredible asset that you can take into the world and you know turn into a lifestyle one way or another and I know, you know, because we're talking about life that it's important to remember that. And I like to tell people that, and I like to tell you that it's important for me to try to inspire people to be something they want to be and need some feedback to just say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you can do that. You can turn that into a thousand different paths, not just one. And so this is cool. I'm sure that this will look like OG stuff. 20 years from now, and you'll be doing something still deeply rooted in this same fertile ground and being successful at it, at whatever way you think that what that means. Thanks, Ken, but, you know, this is about you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And you are me, and we are all together. Juju, juju. <laughs> Shit, man. <laughs> I have the same disease Terrence had. I can talk until I fall unconscious. 
Uh, okay, here, here we go. I always ask the last question is about the future. The unborn. Imagine you're in Congress with them right now. They're here. They? I'm not sure what you mean. The unborn are here. Oh, the unborn are here? Yeah, for sure. Uh, what do you want to say to them or what do you want to hear from them? I <clears throat> I see the word legacy as being something that extends into the past where you pay respect to the people who you've worked with that have given you opportunities to explore things you couldn't otherwise have dreamed of, and also a legacy into the future of out of the work I've done. What is critical in terms of leaving some kind of overview to it, or at least something that can be sorted into different things by somebody besides myself? Because I think that we are seeing, and what I'm expressing in my work is this transition to a, a visual languaging that's very familiar in shamanic traditions and very complicated to understand in our own. And I think that this is going to be woven into the renaissance of psychedelia and give this opportunity for the species to reassess its its attitude and its programs and its strategies. I find myself being a really almost rabid optimist at times just because it gives more room for valuable mistakes. But if I just presume that it's all over with, I don't have any energy to make guesses. And I think everybody has a right to make as many guesses as they can, you know, just keep on trying to figure it out. It's a, it is a bunch of clues and we're all in a sense making editing our own version of the same film, but each one of them's perfectly unique to the person that's dreaming it. And I think we should be dreaming of really big, noble things rather than who the fuck owns what stock options and which fucking cryptocurrency you should buy to save your ass and not have to have a job. That is just not enough. Humanity is so much richer than that, and every one of us is richer than that. Amen. Excuse me. <laughs> so close to preaching. <laughs> okay, one more. What are you going to do with the rest of your time? Mostly that, I would like to put my work in some sort of order and then start this project that I I want to call uh, a fact-free, multimodal uh, autobiography and use it as a way to compile in a manageable way blockchain and other emergent platforms for dealing with all sorts of different kinds of media and stuff and make that available to, at a minimum, my children who need to give a little airtime here because they're wonderful, beautiful spirits that gave me a reason to live when I literally had no fucking sense of why I was alive. My kids are beautiful and the most important blessing in my world. And I want to see them a lot. And I want to leave behind something that helps them make sense of growing up in a household with somebody so marginal in their own culture and a father who was engaged in stuff that uh, had implications. Like they both told me as young adults that they used to have really horrible nightmares. Cops would come to the door and take dad away, which came pretty close a few times. But still, it scared them, even though I was super careful about how they saw what I was doing and 
They met really extraordinary people along the way that they knew were involved with this bigger picture. And at this point, I want to be able to leave them as much as I can to try to figure it out and also find value in it. I mean, it's I'm leaving behind an extraordinary archive. I really don't know anybody in my whole digital world. I don't know anybody that's made more art than I have. And almost none of it's been seen by anybody except myself. And, you know, I'd like to get that in a more approachable context. I don't know if I want to make any more movies because it's so complicated. Making a feature-length film by yourself is just mind-blowing, especially about something like psychedelics. It's just infinitely expressing itself in every detail, but you're never really, there's no done point in psychedelia. There's always something else you can throw this frame inside of a different frame and roll onto some completely different thread. So I don't know if I'll ever make feature length film anymore, but I think I can make media that combines like all sorts of short films and other uh, digital imagery and have it be quasi-randomized, like as a quasi-narrative, but an untrustworthy narrative <laughs> that just would be self-expressive. It wouldn't. It would reveal itself and not have to be told. <laughs> the kitty cat is giving me criticism. I yeah. Uh, I suspect <laughs> that the cat has ended our show here. <laughs> oh, she's going outside. Well, love to the kitty cat. <laughs> Lord. <clears throat> well, you're welcome. <laughs> Go. So we're going to do that for you, right? We're going to get all this stuff out there. I think that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, I feel like you know, like my buddy Ryan here in town is this way. Actually, there's two Ryans that are both this way. <laughs> this way which way is that <laughs> they create and they create and they create but they one ryan my buddy the doctor he puts it all uh he's such a poet but he like writes these gorgeous poet poems in text message and then it's like it's gone it's not in a book it's not something nothing is ever gone somewhere right yes nothing lasts nothing is lost you know but and then the other Ryan like takes all these amazing pictures and never shares them. And I wonder about this. I just, I wonder about the encapsulation, you know, it's sort of prick that bubble, help, you know, release the seeds into the wind. Mm. So I really, I mean, in your case, like, it's like Prince. Apparently Prince has this like hundreds of hours of music that no one has ever heard, you know. Well, let me be clear. I also am very very straightforwardly aware of my limitations as as an artist and I, having seen more art than anyone should ever have seen. I'm not what I consider myself like really great artists of some irrepressible value that deserves to be immortalized shit but i do recognize that i'm a clumsy artist that lived through an insanely intense transformation of what was possible 
in the realm of art. And some of it's been really beautiful and good, and some of it's been so clunky it just jars me and makes me wish it disappeared. And I don't think it necessarily matters that much whether or not a bunch of people see it or not, because whatever the universe is, it's monitoring what I do as well as everybody else, and it it's taken into account at a level of aesthetics and even morality. I think we're on the cusp of this thing where we have to recognizing it's up to us to be the best people we can rather than just what we can get away with. And well, that's for damn sure. Thank you, Ken. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Michael. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, listener-supported program hosted and produced single-handedly by a guy with three jobs and two kids. If you believe in the value of these conversations, please, please go to patreon.com slash michaelgarfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com and become a paying monthly supporter. I cannot thank you enough. Next week, we have Mitch Schultz and Shanta Stevens of Unify Studio, director and producer of The Conscious Molecule, the follow-up documentary to DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and my good friends from Austin, Texas. I'm really excited to share that conversation with you as well. If you're looking for something to do before that episode drops, I highly recommend joining the Future of Fossils Discord server. You'll find the link in the show notes. Thanks so much and have a lovely week.